Last week, we were still in Revelation 21, verse 9. We talked about some come-hithers elsewhere in the Scriptures. We looked at a similar vision of future things, a detailed blueprint that God gave Ezekiel to the nation of Israel, and He told them why He was showing them the patterns of these things from the Millennial Kingdom so that they would be ashamed of their iniquities. And we asked the question if maybe we ought to look at this blueprint of the New Jerusalem for a similar reason, that we, as weak Christians that we are here in America, might be ashamed by seeing these things, and maybe we could be emboldened, and maybe we could for once have a testimony like that of the early church. And so that's where we left off, and um, today I want to start out not in Revelation 21, but I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Second Corinthians chapter 12. First few verses, Paul is making sure the Corinthian church understands that there are things he could boast about. He could exert his authority if he wanted to. He could mention what made him qualified to say these things if he wanted to. But he didn't have to. That wasn't his desire. He said, It is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. I'm not going to glory. I'm not going to brag. I'm not going to boast. It's not expedient for me or for you. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. You want to talk about what you've done, where you've been, what makes you the expert? Well, if I wanted to, I could talk about the revelations that I've had directly from God, directly from the Lord. He says in verse 2, I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. For Paul, it was irrelevant whether he was in the body or out of it. He knew God knew. Such an one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth, how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful, lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in my infirmities. So Paul references back to something that happened to him about 14 years prior. Now we're told in Acts later when he's summarizing uh, um, God, God saving him and, 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 and the things that followed and then in putting that together with Galatians we know that Paul when he was saved went over into Arabia for three years and then he came back and the first time he went to Jerusalem he met Peter and he was there 15 days and it's at that time we learn in Acts through Paul's own testimony that there was a period where he fell into a trance and the Lord said, you know, these people here hate you. I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. And so this was probably the time that that happened. Paul saw things that John is shown here in Revelation 21. Paul was caught up to the third heaven. He didn't know whether it was just in his spirit, in a vision, or a bodily catching up. You know, kind of like what we see with John. He didn't know it was irrelevant, but he was shown unspeakable things. And incredible things, just like John is here. 
And then Paul goes on to say, look, I'm going to glory in that. I'm not going to boast in myself. I don't know if that was me in the body or a vision or what. I'm going to boast in my infirmities. So we have Paul confronted with glories much like John is confronted with here. Paul confronted with the things we're going to read about in detail. So we've got to ask ourselves, how did Paul respond to these revelations? Because this was very early in his ministry. The first time he went to Jerusalem. This was before his missionary journeys. So how did Paul respond to these truths? Well, go read the book of Acts. From that point on, I don't read about an apostle who was trying to stay alive. Who was trying to stay safe. Who was trying to be comfortable. What I see is an apostle who saw these glories and went from that place. Safety wasn't first, it wasn't second, it wasn't third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, or eighth. Paul did not live for the Lord as a man trying to stay alive, as a man holding on to his life. Contrast that with us today. In fact, Paul told the Philippians he was in a strait. I'm in a bind. I want to depart and be with the Lord. I've been to paradise. I want to depart. But I know you guys need some discipleship, so I'm willing to stay, but I'm ready to go. That was Paul's response to these glories. My question is, will it be ours? Because it certainly isn't the life that the American church is living today. Paul told the the uh, Philippians later to, 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 to quit you like men. Be men. Stop being weak and feeble need. In the previous chapter of 2 Corinthians, Paul boasts in his infirmities. People question his ministry, nitpicking. We, we encounter that. We see Paul boasting in his infirmities. What were those infirmities? What were some of the things that beheld him, uh, befell him after he was caught up into the third heaven? Chapter 11, he says, are they ministers of Christ? These are the people out here criticizing him and calling his ministry into question. I speak as a fool. I am more in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths often or oft. Of the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes, save one. He was whipped five times. Thrice I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day he had been in the deep. In journeyings often, in perils of waters, perils of robbers, perils of my own countrymen, perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. He's not complaining. He's just saying, look, this is what I've endured. This is what I'm willing to do, endure for you. Are these other people so in this discord willing to do that? No. So who is it that really cares about you? But Paul did not live as a man trying to stay healthy and safe 
after he saw the glories of God in the third heaven. That's his example. That ought to be ours. I am so sick and tired of health and safety. I'm sick of it. If the COVID virus had come to the early church in the first century, here's what I can promise you. They would have been trying to get sick so they could die and be with the Lord. That's what they would have been trying to do. You doubt me? Let me give you an ancient testimony about first century Christians in the early church under the Roman persecutions. I hope this makes you ashamed. It makes me ashamed. We read of Christians bound in chains of red-hot iron while the stench of their half-consumed flesh rose in a suffocating cloud to heaven. Of others who were torn to the very bone by shells or hooks or iron. Of holy virgins giving over to the lust of the gladiator or to the mercies of the pander. Of 227 converts sent on one occasion to the mines, each with the sinews of one, or the tendons of one leg severed by a red hot iron, and with one eye scooped from its socket. Of fires so slow that the victims writhe for hours in their agonies. Of bodies torn limb from limb or sprinkled with burning lead. Of mingled salt and vinegar poured over the flesh that was bleeding from the rack of tortures prolonged and varied through entire days for the love of their divine master, for the cause they believed to be true. Men and even weak little girls endured those things without flinching. And here's the key. When one single word would have freed them from their sufferings, One word. These Roman emperors would have freed them if they would but have denied Christ. Or something as simple as lighting an incense stick to the emperor. That's all they had to do to escape this stuff. One word. And yet little girls chose to endure. No opinion we may form of the proceedings of priests in a later age, there was some wickedness there, should impair the reverence with which we bend before the martyrs of old. Look at this today. People won't go to church. Scared to death. Hadn't been around other believers in months. Won't extend the right hand of fellowship like Christians are supposed to do. Scared to death. Most of these people are going to hell. Mark my words. They're on their way to hell, lost as the day is long. Because this is the testimony right here of true believers. The earliest believers, some of them who knew personally the apostles. Some of them who knew and walked with the students of the apostles. You know, in this time there was a new class of quote-unquote, Christian that arose called the Traditores. The Traditores were the ones, this was a little bit later in the Roman persecutions, they weren't the ones that denied their faith or or the weak preachers that said, you know, I'll just burn the incense stick because I think God's given me this ministry and I'm just gonna, I'm gonna do it so that I can come back and 
minister to these people. You know, that kind of reasoning. You know, the reasoning we hear today from pastors that tell you Jesus would have wore the mask. I'm going to tell you right now, any pastor or preacher that tells you Jesus would have worn a mask, Jesus would have taken a shot, is adding to the Word of God, and Revelation says God will add to him the plagues written in this book. That is adding to God's Word. And God will add the plagues written in this book to you if you add to His Word. If you add to it like those wicked Jewish rabbis of the synagogue of Satan have done for centuries. If you add to it like the Catholics, beware. Because COVID is going to be the least of your problems. So much adding to God's Word. So much adding to it. But this is the testimony of the earliest believers. living in a society as wicked as we're living in now, under real threat. And yet, the church spread out across that empire. No violence, no revolution, no protesting, no Trump 2024, none of that, that by 313 or 325, what was hated and persecuted and tried to be stamped out was proclaimed the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now, that's an incredible story. Now, that had its own problems as time would go by. We read this prophetically in the message to the church at Pergamos. But wow, what an incredible testimony that most church members aren't even aware of. Because all they hear on Sunday mornings is a little ditty about hoping and coping, a little sermonette for Christianettes. They don't read the Bible or they wouldn't be saying things like Jesus would wear a mask. Oh, yeah? Well, if Jesus did what he was told, they wouldn't have crucified him. Are you kidding me? Are you that blind? If you're that blind, you're probably hell-bound. You need to repent and get right. But Paul the Apostle saw these things. He doesn't give us any details. Later, God allows John to give us detail. How should it affect us? It should affect us so that we're more like Paul and we strive to be more like those early martyrs. Even those young girls, probably the age of these girls right here, could have said one word but chose to be fed to the lions. There came a time in Rome when even the beasts were so sick and tired of feeding on the Christians that they wouldn't even attack them anymore. They wouldn't even attack them anymore. They had enough. They're used to it. I want to make one final point about verse 9. Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. The church is no longer at this point engaged to Jesus Christ. She's married to Him. It's His wife. There's an interesting progression in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 11 Paul speaks of, I have espoused you, the church, to one husband as a virgin bride. So at that point, the church is espoused to Christ. The engagement, she's engaged, she's, it's married, she's legally espoused, but the marriage isn't consummated yet. Then we get to Revelation 19 verse 7, the marriage supper. I believe that takes place in heaven while the tribulation is occurring on the earth. 
And we're told that the lamb's wife has made herself ready, or the bride has made herself ready. So then we have the wedding feast and the consummation. Now, with the descent of the city of God, the lamb's, the wife's, or the bride's home in the millennium, she is his wife. Not a spouse, not a bride, the wife. She's his wife. We are a spouse to Christ. One day, those of us that are born again will sit at that marriage table. And that marriage will be consummated. And then when that home comes down, that home is likened to the church. The Lamb's wife. Married to Him for all eternity. That ought to... That ought to... Provoke us to not try to hold on to this old world. Who wants to hold on to this world? Look at this country. At least the Roman Empire tried to keep the barbarians out. We opened the door and let them in. These, are, these people coming in are wicked as hell. If there were two of the worst types of humanity to bring in this country, Afghanis and Haitians are probably at the bottom. And you know what? I don't apologize for that. Paul warned Titus and said, be careful of those Cretans. They're all a bunch of liars, evil beasts, and slow bellies. Stereotyping is biblical because it speaks truth. If we do a little more stereotyping, and i got plenty of them about the white man. The white man's got plenty of problems. Arrogant, weak, foolish, selfish. Maybe we need some more stereotyping. But at least the Romans tried to keep the Goths and the Visigoths and the Mongols out. We just say, come on in. These people running this country are traitors. They want to destroy this country. And we just say, yes, Massa. We, we deserve this as a nation. We deserve it. But not so for the believer. We're not looking for an earthly country. We're like, we, we need to be like Abraham. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That's what we're looking for. They that say such things, it says in Hebrews 11, confess that they are strangers and pilgrims on this earth. Here we have a city likened to the wife or to a woman. Women are often likened to cities and cities or countries to women. Who's ever referred to the United States with the pronoun he? Never. No, not in literary works, not in speeches. We always talk about she, her. Rome was spoken of as a woman. That's, of course, nowadays you can flip-flop everything around. But women, or cities and countries are often likened to women. That's what we have here. The devil has a bride. You can rest assured the devil has a bride. Just like Christ, and that bride is a city. It moves around. The, the, the devil, you know, he moves around. He, he's a womanizer per se. He has a bride. It, well, it used to be Babylon. Today it's Washington, D.C. Trust me. devil's got a bride. It's Washington, D.C. And then Republicans and Democrats up there. That's the devil's whore. Jesus Christ has a bride. It ain't Washington. It ain't... Any of these cities that think themselves so great and wonderful for the world? It's the New Jerusalem. 
a woman and a city, and she has the light of the glory of God like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. That's the bride of Christ. That's the church. The devil's got his bride, and it thinks it's so wonderful and great and leads the world, and it's putrefying. Just an old spiritual slut, an old spiritual whore. That's Washington, D.C. You remember a couple weeks ago I highlighted a statement by Horace Greeley, the newspaper man. He said it's impossible to mentally or socially enslave a Bible-reading people. Powerful statement. Here's something he also said. I think it was in 1870, five years after the Civil War, he had this to say about Washington, D.C. Washington is not a place to live in. This was 1870. The rents are high. The food is bad. The dust is disgusting, and the morals are deplorable. Go west, young man. Go west and grow up in the country. See, there's a greater context to that old statement there. Man, if Washington's morals were deplorable in 1870, can you imagine now? I wouldn't walk within 50 miles of that old wicked city and throw pearls to swine. I wouldn't do it. May the ground open up and God swallow that city whole today, just like He did Korah and the rebels. May fire from heaven come down if these wicked people won't repent and devour it in the sight of all Americans that they might repent and humble themselves before the Lord. That's my position. I don't expect you to agree. I expect some of you would disagree. Maybe I hope God will get His remnant out of there before He does so like He did with Noah. But consider a couple things. I've been reading an ancient or an old church history. It's an eight-volume set from the middle 1800s. And it's just fascinating to see how closely America's fall today resembles the fall of the Roman Empire. The only difference is we're we're seeing what happened over decades and centuries happen in a shorter amount of time. But it's exactly the same. Exactly the same. The Roman Empire's never died. It was once legs of iron, and now it's iron mixed with clay. And it's this country up one side and down the other. That's why we need to quit putting our hope in it. Certainly not in Trump 2024. Been there, done that. A writer in, in the 1850s said this, Never, probably, was there any age or in any place where the worst forms of wickedness were practiced with a more unblushing effrontery than in the day of Rome under the government of the Caesars. I wonder if he'd say the same thing if he were alive today and looked at Washington, D.C. Worse, in my opinion. Worse. Ancient Rome, in the slow but certain process of her dissolution and decay, teaches the sad moral of all human tales. Tis but the same rehearsal of the past over and over again. First freedom, then glory when freedom fails. Then wealth, then vice, then corruption, then barbarism at the last. Is that not a tit-for-tat, point-for-point 
description of us today in this country. The sad moral of all human tales. The only thing men ever learn from history is that they never learn from history. Freedom, then glory, then wealth, then vice, then corruption, then barbarism. Is there any question where we're at in that chain? Barbarism. Barbarians fleeing over our border. And our government tells law enforcement, you can't ride horses anymore. Wicked people. These people in leadership ought to be... You know, they, they, we criticize the government in Afghanistan, the Taliban. I read an article about where two men were hung from a crane in Kabul the other day. You know what these men had done? They had kidnapped some people. Kidnapped some people. There may have been rape involved. Some heinous, there were heinous crimes. And these men were executed for their crimes and then their bodies were hung in the streets as a warning to others who would kidnap women and children. And our news media talks about how horrible that is, how barbarian. Now, I'm asking myself, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? That's where we are. But friend, that is not our hope. We are not clinging to a hope that this country can arise. It will not. It's perishing. We need to be sounding the alarm like Noah did, even though no one listened to him. You know, I, I think my opinion about the stupidest Bible movie I've ever watched, um, it, it changed again. You know, I talked about Exodus, gods, and kings. Well, I finally watched one that I knew would be ridiculous. And boy, and for the first half of it, it was actually not too bad. But man, it was ridiculous. One of the stupidest things I've ever seen. It's called Noah. Stowaways on the boat. <laughs> I mean, come on. Wondering whether he should kill his own kids. Two of his sons don't have wives when they get on the boat. I mean, I don't know. That's got to be garbage from the Talmuds. The director was Jewish by his name, very obvious. But man, where does this garbage come from? Where does it come from? Noah was a preacher of righteousness for 120 years. Warning, 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 warning. Not trying to hold on to the old world. No one listened. And when he got in that boat... He didn't shut the door like that stupid movie portrays. God shut the door. God shut the door. We need to be like Noah, living in these times, exciting times, because the Lamb's wife is a city. That is our home. That's what we need to be laboring for. That's what the early Christians in Rome sought. They sought this. They responded like Paul. They could have easily recanted their faith under Roman jurisprudence and could have walked away, but refused to do it. Refused to do it. As we move on in the chapter from verses 10 of chap, chapter, verse 10 of chapter 21 on into verse 5 of chapter 22, we really have a very detailed blueprint of our future home. The wife of Christ, the church, likened to the new Jerusalem. 
And I'm going to say from the outset that this new Jerusalem that John sees descending out of heaven, it's not heaven, it comes down from heaven. He sees it in the millennium. Not has he earlier declared it in the new heavens and the new earth. There are several clues here. This is not the Jerusalem that Israel is shown by Ezekiel. There are very key differences. Neither is the vision of the blueprint John sees here during the new heavens and the new earth. This is during the millennium. And there's clues here that tell us that. So the new Jerusalem, the church, the wife of the Lamb is one of those things that transcends this creation to the new creation. We've talked about other things. God's Word transcends. Israel transcends. The church transcends. So keep that in mind. So we have a detailed blueprint here. Verse 10, we see the city's descent. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Now back in verse 2, John sees a new heaven and a new earth. And he says he saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So he saw this. Now there's an aside in which the angel says, step aside, let me show you something. And he shows him a detailed blueprint. But as I've said, this coming down is in this creation. And there are clues as to why. Even going back to the Old Testament. The Old Testament speaks in the millennium of Jerusalem and of the mountain of the Lord's house established in the top of the mountains. So John is taken, taken to a high mountain here. Not like in chapter 17 when he's shown the whore, the fake church. He's taken to the wilderness. Here he's taken to a high mountain. Not like Jesus. Satan took Jesus up to a very high mountain and looked down upon the cities of man and all the kingdoms. And Satan said, I will give you all of this, all of their glory. He showed Jesus all of the glory of man in a moment of time. And he says, all you got to do is bow down and worship me. And I will give you authority over these because it's been delivered to me. I've got authority here. We've all talked about all that, what that means. Jesus looked down. If Satan didn't have the ability to do it, it wouldn't have been a temptation for Jesus and his humanity. Christ refused. It is written, thou shalt worship the Lord God and him only shalt thou serve. Christ endured those temptations so that He could be a perfect sacrifice for us. His act of obedience was just as important as the blood that was shed. Because if He hadn't been actively obedient in thought, word, and deed and without sin, the blood that had been sh- would, was shed wouldn't be spotless. It wouldn't cover our, our sins, past, present, and future. Praise God for that. But here John is taken and told to look up, not down. When you stop looking down, Guys, we look down too much. We need to look up. The psalmist says in Psalm 5 that when he wakes up in the morning, he looks up. And the first thing he does is praises the Lord. How many of us look up and praise the Lord before our feet hit the floor in the morning? I know I don't. I've been trying to. I've been trying before my feet hit the floor to, 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 
to, to worship the Lord. Not ask Him for something, but to just tell Him thanks. But that's what the psalmist does. We need to look up, set our affections on things above. Here John looks up and sees the holy Jerusalem coming down from heaven. This is not heaven. This is coming out of heaven. The great city, the holy Jerusalem, the holy Jerusalem is the new Jerusalem. It's the Lamb's wife. It's Abraham's dream. It's our promise. All one in the same. It's our promise. Those of us that keep God's Word to the end, we're promised deliverance from the hour of temptation, from the tribulation, and we're promised this inheritance. Jesus told the church at Philadelphia, the same church He told He would keep out of the tribulation because they kept the word of His patience. He that over, him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall no more go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from God. And I will write upon him my new name. You know, there's coming a time when we'll have to have an access pass, an access passport, and it'll be stamped on us. Limited access, restricted access. That's the bride's home. That's our hope. That was Abraham's dream. It's the hope of the Old Testament saint and the New Testament church. This is the very place, the very place, what you're getting ready to see in detail, it's the very place Jesus said to His disciples He was going back to heaven to prepare for us His bride. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive. Remember that word paralambano in the Greek? Necessitates a rapture. Receive. The same word used when Joseph took Mary to be his wife. The same word used when Jesus said two will be in the field. One will be taken or received. The other left. I will receive you to myself. That's what he's talking about. New Jerusalem coming down from heaven. It's a manufactured home. Not built on site. It's a manufactured home. And then it's brought to its location. Manufactured homes. Don't knock them. Our future home is a manufactured home. Jesus has been working on that for 2,000 years. As Keith Green said, we sang one of his songs this morning. Living here is like living in a garbage can compared to that. The new Jerusalem coming down from heaven out of God, uh, coming down from God out of heaven. Its descent, verse 10. In verse 11, we see its substance, its overall substance. Having the glory of God and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Having the glory of God. There's an interesting Greek verb here. It's the verb translated to have. It means to possess. It's part of it. It's inextricably woven in its structure. In other words, you can't separate. It has this. It has the glory of God. 
God's glory can't come and go. It's part of its substance. So this right here proves it's not the same Jerusalem that Ezekiel saw. This has the glory of God. Compare that with the Old Testament tabernacle that was constructed in the wilderness. What happened? The Shekinah glory came down and filled it after it was built. What about the temple that Solomon built? We're told that the glory of God filled it. And then later in Ezekiel 11, the prophet saw the glory of God leave it, departed. Then you get over to Ezekiel's millennial Jerusalem, millennial temple. It's built. And then the glory of God comes from the east and fills it. That's not what we see here. That Greek verb won't allow for that. This new Jerusalem has the glory of God. It's in its DNA. It can't come and go. It's different. It's the mountain of the Lord's house and the top of the mountains. Not the rebuilt earthly Jerusalem or temple that will be the world capital in the millennium. The new Jerusalem is like the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. The believer has the Spirit of God. Once the Spirit indwells that believer, it's part of his substance. We can grieve him, we can quench him, but he doesn't leave. In the Old Testament, the Spirit came and went upon people. It's not like that under the New Covenant, praise God. That's why when people claim to be saved and they don't have any fruit of the Spirit, we know they're liars. We know they're liars. Her light, when I read this about her light... I think about Moses coming down from the Mount Horeb, from Mount Sinai. It said his face shone. They had to put a veil on it. Or I think about Stephen when he was standing before the council and being falsely accused. It said that people were astonished. They looked at his face and it shone as if he had been an angel. He was a complete peace. When I think of her light... That phrase, her light, I'm reminded of another passage in 2 Corinthians. We were there a lot this morning. Let's go back. I think this is worth reading because it speaks to us today in terms of the difference between the Christian and the world. 2 Corinthians 3, 9. I'm going to read through the rest of the chapter. For if the ministration of condemnation be glory. Paul is contrasting the law and the gospel. Much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth. For if that which is done away was glorious, talking about the law, much more that which remaineth is glorious. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. Guys, Paul used plainness of speech. He didn't beat around the bush. He didn't use flattering words or flowering language. Like these fools that write these op-eds and these papers, these preachers telling us what we need to do. And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. But their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament. Oh yeah, it's there. That veil is there on the Jew. I've seen it. I've heard it. It's there. Scripture fulfilled right before our eyes. 
Which veil is done away in Christ? That veil can be done away in the life of an individual Jew who puts his faith in Messiah. And then their eyes are open. And man, they can be an incredible witness for the gospel. And it's almost like they get an instant understanding of things. It takes us a while. But anyway, I've seen this uh, before my, my eyes. But even unto this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Some people say you shouldn't waste your time witnessing to the Jewish folks because they're blind and God's not going to open their eyes until the right time. Well, not according to this. The veil can be taken away because there are those that turn to the Lord. There's always been a Jewish element of the New Testament church. We've talked about all that. Replacement theology is false. Beware of it. Now, the Lord is that spirit. He's the one that can take away the veil. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Liberty. Tyranny? No, there's liberty. The Spirit of the Lord, where He is, where His glory is, there is liberty. So what's with these simp preachers with their neck beards, look like they've eaten too much fried chicken, writing their little articles telling us that God's glory is to obey tyranny or to obey rules and regulations when the Bible here matches the Spirit of the Lord with liberty. <clears throat> but we all, here's another interesting phrase, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Guys, we are to reflect with an open face on our countenance, the very glory that we're being conformed to. This glory that the city of New Jerusalem, our future home has, ought to be reflected, even if it's faint, in our countenances today. It ought to be reflected with an open face, not behind a face diaper, not with a mask on your face. Your countenance is a witness. And when you cover it up like Satan wants you to, you're disguising your countenance and you're hiding your testimony. It's wicked as hell. In my opinion. I've never been one that won't share my opinion. There's a reason why I won't wear a mask. And I refuse to. Why I've drawn that line in the sand and it has nothing to do with not being a rebel and not liking somebody tell me what to do. I can't do it in good conscience. Because my countenance, God's called me to be an evangelist. And even my countenance is to be a witness and reflect the glory of God. And I'm not going to hide it. That's just me. You need to be fully persuaded in your own mind. You know, some people say, well, it's a little, I read this article, I saw another one of these sent preachers writing about how there's no such thing as a religious exemption to the vaccine. That Christians have no business. That your exemption compels you to get it. You know, all the love your neighbor stuff. Well, I don't know what Bible this preacher reads. And this, this old fool of this mega church in Texas, you know. That old Robert Jeffress. I never liked him. Trump, one of Trump's spiritual advisors. I mean, that wicked Jezebel, Paula White was one of his spiritual advisors. Said that. He wouldn't grant any, he wouldn't sign any papers requesting religious exemption with his church members because there is no credible religious reason to exempt yourself from this vaccine. Well, excuse me, sir, I, I read the Bible. 
And in matters of conscience, the Bible tells me to be fully persuaded in my mind. I'm not. The Bible tells me that whatsoever is not of faith is sin. I can't take that shot. I can't wear that mask in faith. So for me to do it, I'm not talking about you. That's between you and God. It's a sin and I'm not going to do it. I'm not fully persuaded in my mind that that vaccine is safe, it's effective. I'm not persuaded. And then the Bible says in that same context to abstain from even the appearance of evil. So guys, I don't need to talk about stem cell lines from aborted fetuses and all of this kind of stuff or get some pastor's signature. I don't need to talk about any of that. I'm not going to violate my conscience before God. It's that, it's that simple. I don't know why people think they've got to go into all these little explanations and everything like that. But my friends, we need to be, the spirit of Antichrist is real. It's a, a lying spirit and it has invaded our churches. What happened to a man's conscience before God? we got Christian pastors out here now telling Christians not to listen to their conscience and casting that aside. Paul said in Romans 14 that that is wrong. You may have a different opinion. I don't want you to violate your conscience. Don't tell me to violate mine. Martin Luther said it's never safe and it's never wise to violate your conscience. But we don't even talk about that anymore. But our conscience, according to this, is reflected in our countenance. The word used for light here in Revelation 21.11 is an interesting Greek word. We would get our English word photo or anything with the photo from this word, foster, which means light. But it means an illuminator. It's not a light the new Jerusalem has. It's the light she is. That's what that word means. It, it's something she has it, she possesses it. It's not like a headlamp that I have. She herself is an illuminator. Like the sun, the moon, or the stars. And here's what I find interesting in the context of everything I just said. About masks and shots and all that kind of stuff. Not violating your conscience. Turn to Philippians 2, because here we see the exact same word that's translated light when talking about the New Jerusalem's light. We see it used here of what we as believers are to be in a wicked generation like we're in now. Do all things, verse 14, this is what Paul says to the Philippians, do all things without murmurings and disputings. Man, if the church would just obey that one exhortation. Probably about 90% of our problems would go away. Just that one thing. Man, we murmur and complain like Israel in the desert. Oh my goodness. Why should we do all things without murmurs and disputings? That ye may be blameless and harmless. The sons of God without rebuke. In the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. Among whom you shine as lights. Foster in the world. The glory that is our future home ought to be reflected in us to the world. It ought to be reflected through our countenance. Don't cover it up. Our countenance, our testimony, we are to reflect the light 
that our future home has. That light, it says here, is like a jasper stone. We see back in Revelation 4, when John is caught up to heaven, when he's raptured up to heaven, and lo and behold, right there in the throne room is the church. People try all tribes, tongues, and nations, redeemed. It says that he beheld a throne in heaven and one that sat on the throne, and he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto the emerald. Many, 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 many Sundays ago, we talked about God's throne in Revelation 4. The rainbow is a powerful symbol there. It's a powerful testimony that says the storm is over for the church. The church is right there in God's throne room. Before Antichrist has released the first seal and we see a rainbow, the storm is over. Be at rest. But God's throne shimmers like a jasper. Our future home that Jesus Christ is preparing has the same shimmer as God's throne. That's profound. Pliny, the Roman author from the first century and philosopher, he speaks of a stone called a white jasper that that was found or known to be in India. The astrios in Greek. It was almost like a crystal. That's what I think of here. Crystal, clear, shimmering. This is the city's substance, its glory. The chief substance of the city, diamond-like. Crystals have carbon. Of carbon. Carbon is the chief constituent of all living things. It's one thing that all living things have in common, and yet they want to talk about we need to reduce carbon. I mean, these people, these people talking to us about climate change and immigration and, and uh, uh, voting audits and all that. These people don't know their right hand from their left hand. The CDC doesn't know. It's like the IRS. The right hand doesn't know. The right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing. And you believe them. People believe them. Give me a break. Carbon's the chief constituent of all living things. The substance of the New Jerusalem is a diamond-like substance of carbon. It's a living city for a living bride. A living city for a living bride. In verses 12 through 14, we see the wall of the city. So we have its descent Verse 10, it's substance, verse 11, verses 12 through 14, it's wall, the wall of the city. We're told that wall is great and it's high. And it has 12 gates and 12 foundations. An image comes to my mind from the old city of Jerusalem. They've unearthed, since the first time I went to Jerusalem in the, in the middle 90s until the last time, it's so amazing how much has been unearthed around that temple mount. And on... One side, you can go down and get down under, and there's a piece of a, of, a, of, a, of a city street that would have been part of the markets where all that stuff was being sold. It goes back to the time of Christ. I mean, you could possibly be walking down a little mar- uh, avenue that Christ walked down. But there's 
a side where there's a bunch of stairs that have been unearthed. And there are a bunch of pools down at the bottom. And it's on the side of the Al-Aqsa Mosque. But there's, you can see, the mo- it's, it's hard to describe. And I, if I had a picture, I'd show it to you. But you could see where there were some old gates that have been filled in by the Turks that probably go back to the, to the, the second temple. But those gates, there are three doors or three arched gateways right side by side. So there's three of them right there. And so you have stairs going back to that time that ascend from down below at all the pools up. And there would have been entrance through those three doors, one right after another, or three gates. That's the image. When I think of 12 gates, three on each side, I can see that image because I've seen it in the old city of Jerusalem. And when I think of 12 foundations, I think of the stairs, that they were foundations themselves whereby people ascended up to the house of the Lord. So when you go to that place, it's very possible that you can be standing where Peter preached his message at Pentecost. And it's no wonder they were able to baptize 3,000 people that day. There were all these mikvah baths right there. They're just right there. So it's a powerful place to go and consider the things, but you can see where there were those three gates that have been filled in. And I think about that. There's a visual from the old city of Jerusalem, a remnant of three gates partially blocked and stairs leading from the pools up to them. This city has, verse 12, it had a wall great and high, had 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and the names written thereupon, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. So I envision three gates side by side on each side of the city. And these gates sit atop 12 foundations. I envision these ascending foundations that are like steps. On the gates are the names of the 12 12 tribes of Israel. And there's an angel at each gate. Angels standing guard. But it's not like the cherubims that stood guard at the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve were expelled. They're not there to bar all entrance. They're there to allow entrance at gates that never close. To allow access to the tree of life. Not barring access to the tree of life. So here we have an an image in Genesis undone or reversed in Revelation 21. The tree of life, access barred, The tree of life we're going to see later is in the midst of that city. Access granted. Angels standing guard to allow access, not to bar. Jesus told the church at Ephesus, To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel, bear with me just a moment. When I read that, I'm reminded of the arrangement of the camp of Israel around the tabernacle in Numbers chapter 2. We're told multiple times in Hebrews that these things were patterns of heavenly things. The arrangement, the furniture, everything that God told Moses to build, he was to build after the pattern he was shown. And Hebrews tells us that these were shadows, examples Patterns of heavenly things. So in the arrangement of the tribes around the tabernacle, we have a 
pattern of the new Jerusalem. On the east was Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. On the south, Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. On the west, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. On the north, Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. Here we have in verse 12 what mirrors the camp of Israel in the desert. We have references made to north, south, east, and west. It says if you go into verse 13, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. Friends, north, south, east, and west are based upon the fixed position of this earth. The position of Polaris, the north star in the heavens, and the place of this earth. Those are directions that belong to this creation. They're based upon the fixed position of a star in the heavens. So here we have one of those clues that John is seeing the new Jerusalem coming down in the millennium where he makes reference to earthly directions that are based upon the present heavens. Here we have a subtle indication that John sees the new Jerusalem of verse 2 in chapter 21 in the new heaven and the new earth, also descending to this earth in the millennium. It transcends those two ages. These directions are based upon the fixed positions of the stars in this heaven. Who's ever heard the term... This astronomy term, parallax. Does anybody know what that means? Parallax, stellar parallax, is the position of stars, not in terms of the night sky because they move around, but in terms of their relationship to each other. So when you look at Orion's belt, you see stellar parallax. You see those three stars are a specific distance or position in relationship to each other, and that has never changed throughout the entire history of man. Never changed. Arcturus, never changed. The Pleiades, never changed. Stellar parallax, never changed. The parallax, or the position of the North Star, uh, 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 sailors have been knowing how to go north since the beginning of time. It never changes. That's very interesting to me, because stellar parallax makes NASA's claims ridiculous. It makes no sense. If we're spinning around and the sun's spinning, everything's random going around the galaxy, then those stars ought to be different, and they're not. It's like truth right in front of our face, and we can't see it. But these directions... come from the fixed position of Polaris as relates to this earth. So there's a subtle uh, indication here that we're seeing that new Jerusalem also in the millennium. Verse 14, And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. When I think of foundations here, I think of the ascending stairs that I saw in the old city that would lead up to the gates. In the Psalms, you have what are called Psalms of Ascent. These were psalms that the Jews would sing as they ascended up the stairs 
into the gates of the temple. I believe these foundations are foundations of the city and they're of a different jewel and of a different gem, but they're, uh, they're foundations that are stairs that lead up to the gates. The, the uh, gates are named after the 12 tribes of Israel. The foundations are named after the 12 apostles of the Lamb. What was an apostle? Apostle was one who was an eyewitness of the resurrected Lord. And it was one who was audibly chosen by Him and sent. Not in a dream, not in a vision. But Christ audibly sent Him. We're told in Luke that He named, Jesus named the apostles. The apostles were the ones in Acts 1 He, Jesus, had chosen. And then Paul refers to the signs of an apostle were signs and wonders. There are no apostles living today. There's a lot of folks that call themselves apostles. There's a particular demographic that loves terms like that in their churches. I don't know why that is. It just is. But... We're told that Jesus chose 12. They were apostles because He chose them. He sent them. We have Simon or Peter, Petros, Cephas, what Jesus called Simon, Peter, and Andrew. They were brothers. They're often listed together. You see the, 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 the apostles listed in the Gospels in pairs. Well, why is that? Well, Jesus sent them out two by two. Simon and Andrew, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Jesus called Boanerges, the sons of thunder. Philip and Bartholomew. Bartholomew is who we see as Nathaniel in the book of John, sitting under the fig tree. Philip goes to him and says, Man, I found the Messiah. Oh, come on. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus says, When I saw you under the fig tree... That's Bartholomew. Bartholomew would, would be his Roman or his Greek name. Nathaniel, his Hebrew name. Jews have been taking Gentile names to go along with their Jewish names for centuries. Sometimes to hide their identity. Then you've got Thomas and Matthew. Thomas is also called Didymus, which means twin. So it's thought, Thomas is always listed with Matthew. It's thought that, it's thought that perhaps Matthew and, and Thomas were twin brothers. Okay? Matthew's also called Levi. Here's a very interesting thing about Matthew. In Matthew's gospel, there's a list of the apostles. But there's a key difference when Matthew is writing his gospel versus what Mark and Luke say. In Matthew chapter 10 verse 3, Matthew is listed as Matthew the publican. And Thomas comes first. So when Matthew gives that list, he says Thomas and Matthew the publican. The other Gospels don't say that. They say Matthew and Thomas or Levi and Thomas. But here Matthew identifies himself as the publican. Now, now contrast that spirit with pastors today. I was the one that was the publican. And won't list himself first. He puts his brother if that was his twin brother ahead of him. That's just an interesting humility there that's so foreign in our churches today. Matthew and Thomas. Then you have James, the son of Alphaeus. Alphaeus is also Cleophas that we see who's on the road to Emmaus. 
to see and sees the resurrected Lord. It's the same one. James was a cousin of Jesus. When we talk about Jesus' brothers, back in those days, that word brother would also be used of your first cousins. And so what we probably have here is James, the son of Alphaeus, is Jesus' cousin. He would have been the leader in the early New Testament church. Thaddeus, or Lebaeus, would be Jude, the brother of James. So he's the author of the book of Jude, another one of Jesus' cousins. And then Simon the Canaanite, or the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot. These were the twelve apostles, but Judas fell. Jesus said it was better that he had never been born. He fell. And then in Acts chapter 1, you see the apostles casting lots for who needed to replace him. It was important they found somebody who had accompanied with them from the beginning. And they chose Matthias. Now, I, I kind of look at that and wonder if that wasn't a lesson in the folly of haste. Um, Romans 9.33 talks about Jesus, the chief cornerstone, the stone that the builders rejected. Whosoever uh, believeth upon Him shall not be ashamed or confounded. That passage in the Old Testament that Paul is quoting says, whosoever... Um, shall believe upon Him or, or trust in Him, will not make haste. It doesn't say won't be confounded or ashamed. It says will not make haste. Well, shame and con- being confounded is the, what happens when you're hasty. You're hasty, you're going to be ashamed. So it's interesting how the Old Testament passage talks about the action and the New Testament quotation of it focuses on the result. Haste should not be something that is common in the life of a believer. And I think when those early apostles chose Matthias, they were perhaps hasty because Paul had, God had a replacement for, for Judas. It was Paul the apostle, the least of all the apostles. So I, I think this foundation would include him, obviously not Judas Iscariot. It's possible that Thomas, Matthew, James, and Jude were all brothers. Because I believe it, it mentions in one place in the gospel that Levi was also the son of Alphaeus. So we, we had uh, a lot of brothers, a lot of people were related. You know, Jesus called these 12 apostles just from a few families. And it was those men that turned the world upside down. It's an crazy testimony of how God uses the foolish things of this earth to confound the wise. So we have 12 gates, the 12 tribes of Israel harkens back to the arrangement of the tribes around the tabernacle. We have the 12 foundations harken back or harken to the 12 apostles of the Lamb an eternal testimony to their service and their faith. You know, the disciples were worried about, you know, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. What, you know, what are we going to get for this? I mean, they have an eternal engraving on a foundation of the city Abraham looked for. That's incredible. That's incredible. And we are the spiritual descendants of the apostles and the prophets, their teachings. And I'm so thankful for the apostles who went out, the ones who saw Jesus, who heard His commission, His great commission, and then the book of Acts shows us how they understood that commission and what it looked like when they obeyed it. That's an incredible testimony. 
That's why we should know the book of Acts. That's why we should look at the early church. They are the ones closest in time to Jesus walking the earth. And it shows how the earliest Christians understood His great commission. Doesn't mean the early church fathers weren't wrong. They were wrong a lot. In fact, that was predicated or predicted in the message to the church at Ephesus and then Smyrna and Pergamos. But here we just have an incredible image of a city that has the light of God's glory. Twelve gates, twelve foundations. So these are, this is the wall of the city. From here we learn about its specific dimensions. We learn about its construction. We see some things that are part of that city or inside that city. So this detailed blueprint goes into chapter 22 and then we have some concluding exhortations and the book comes to an end. There's some warnings there. The Bible ends with a stark warning. I like to tell folks when I'm out walking, I'm just a middle-aged preacher. God told me to drop what I was doing and walk across this country and go warn some folks because this nation's in big trouble with God. Judgment's coming. It's going to hell. I've got to warn some folks. Church today thinks can't warn anybody about anything. We just got to play patty cakes and sing kumbaya with everybody, and that's why we're in the mess we're in. But this is not our home. So I hope these things have encouraged you. Um, you know, I could go into even more detail than I already do. Um, the point being more important in the detail, in a sense. The point being, let these things instill in us the same attitude it instilled in Paul. The same attitude it instilled in the early Christians. We're not going to be taken before the lions, guys. We're not going to be... The things described there are not going to be our fate. Because everything's so nice and clean today. Oh, they may kill us. You know, they may drag us into a sterilized room and stick something in us that'll kill us. It's all neat and clean. I'd certainly rather take that than be <laughs> fed to some lions. So how much more so should we display that same zeal, Lord, of those little girls who just one word could have escaped it? Because they knew this world was not their home. Hebrews 11 tells us that there were those that through faith did mighty things. There will be those who do exploits in the last days. Daniel prophesies it. There were those that, that, that waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight armies of aliens. But then it says others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. They didn't even try to fight back. So they might obtain a better resurrection. Others had trials of cruel mockings. Yea, moreover, uh, of scourging. Yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. Some wandered about in dens and caves of the earth and in the mountains and the deserts. And they all had a good report a good testimony of their faith. Not receiving the promises because God had some better thing for us that they without us 
would not be made perfect. Therefore, or wherefore, seeing as we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, we need to run with patience the race that is set before us. Putting aside that sin that easily besets us, run with patience, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the glory that was put before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. And we usually end there when we read or think about this passage, but the next, what it says next, I was memorizing Hebrews 11, and I was forced to do the first three verses of chapter 12 because they go together. But in verse 3 it says, Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your mind. We need to, when we get weary and faint and want to fall into just doing, going along with the flow, doing what we're told, we need to remember Jesus. Jesus endured. Jesus faced the contradiction. And he resisted unto blood. We're told in verse 4 that we've not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Jesus did. That ought to motivate us to be bold. Just like Paul's example, motivate us to be bold. The New Jerusalem, motivate us to be bold like those early Christians. And that's what we need to do. That has more power today in America. A bold testimony for Jesus has more power than 20,000 votes for Donald Trump. 2024. Because 20,000 votes for Donald Trump will end up being 50,000 votes for the other person running. I mean, that's just the way our, our system is. I mean, come on. But a bold testimony is worth more than the value of millions of votes or rallies or conservative talking heads or commission, uh, political action groups and all that stuff. Away with that. It's the problem, not the solution. But our testimony is a light. It's a light that ought to reflect the light of our future home. All right, guys, I'm sorry I went a little long. Uh, I hope uh, that was a blessing. I, like I said, I felt a little bit unprepared. Praise God. And uh, we'll come back sometime later and just continue through this chapter. And I think Matthew's going to resume his teaching next week. So let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this food. Thank you for this incredible blueprint that's been given to us about our future home. We long for it. Help us to fall upon that promise, Jesus, you gave your disciples, your apostles, before you left. One day, you're coming back. You're preparing that home for us now, and one day you'll come back and receive us to yourself. And from that home, we will rule and reign with you over the earth, and we will endure for all eternity, ages upon ages in a new heaven and the new earth where all things are new. Lord, I, I pray that now that future light of the glory of God in our future home would also be reflected in our countenance, Lord, in our words, in our example in this dark world, that it would point others to Christ. And may we not cover it. May we not put that candle under a bushel, but let it shine like a city on a hill. Thank you for this church and the people in here who are teachable, who listen to God's word and eat it up, who go out and live it. It's easy to preach these things to these brethren, Lord. I hope I would say the same things in another scenario, but it's easy to come here and preach such things. 
Because I know the people in here fear you and they believe your word and they want to obey it. And I'm just thankful for that. I'm thankful for this church and these folks, these brethren. And Lord, uh, thankful that we can endure these things together. Just like those Christians of old, Lord. What testimonies, God. I long for the day when we can be in your presence with the saints of old. The little girls who could have escaped the things that were done to them with but one word and chose not to. Lord, please bring revival. Bring a spiritual awakening to our country that will awaken this flame in the lives of Christians. I know you still have your remnant. We're weak, Lord. We're not in the place we need to be when the wedding comes. I just pray you do a work. Show these fools in power to be but men. Do to them what you did to Pharaoh. And Lord, bring about a revival that will have the same impact that the testimony of the early church had upon the Roman Empire of old. I know we're going that direction as a nation and there's nothing that can stop it, but Lord, even in the Civil War, you brought great revival, and we pray for that now. Bless the food we're about to eat. Bless our fellowship. Those are precious things in dark days. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.